The Forum at 8 on SAFM. I've heard that ad a couple of times. It's very funny, a little bit of levity, but at the same time, we're supposed to have Chapter 9 institutions that guard against these kinds of things. They've become the watchdogs in our country, guarding against government, keeping them in check and transforming our society. Today on the Forum at 8, good morning. Thank you very much for joining me. We're examining Chapter 9 institutions. How would you rate their performance in our democracy over the last 20 years? You can SMS us on 34701, tweet or Facebook me on on the show AM Live on SAFM. Email right now AM Live at SAFM.co.za. But give me a call. The lines are open 0891104208. There's a number of Chapter 9 institutions. I'd like to first start off with three in particular. They're concerned with identifying and combating various kinds of discrimination. And as you can imagine, it's a critically important issue in a country which has once featured institutionalized discrimination. It was made possible through unjust laws. So let's start with the, with the first three of these Chapter 9s. It's the Human Rights Commission, the SAHRC, the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious and Linguistics Communities. It's known informally as the CRL Rights Commission. And the third is the Commission for Gender Equality. My first guest is the Executive Secretary of CASAC, the Council for the Advancement of the SA Constitution. Lawson Naidu, good morning. Thanks for speaking to us again. Good morning, Darshan. How would you rate the performance of these three institutions, these first three that I've identified? Well, Darshan, I think before we do that, you know, it, it's important to, to locate it in the context of the Chapter 9 uh, structure as a whole. Why do we have these bodies in the first place? Mm. Uh, because I think it's very important so that people understand why we have them. There are six bodies listed in Chapter 9 of the Constitution. The three that you've mentioned, there is the so-called rights human rights-based bodies, and then we have three others, which is the Office of the Public Protector, the Office of the Auditor General, and the Electoral Commission. And those, I think we can say, are there to ensure efficient, cost-effective, transparent, and accountable governance. Good mm. governance, in other words. Mm. So we have these two sets of, of, of institutions that are there to strengthen our constitutional democracy. In terms of the Constitution, they are independent bodies uh, set out as such within the Constitution. Their broad mandate is also established within the Constitution, in Chapter 9 of the Constitution, and their detailed uh, framework of, of reference is, is established in national legislation that has been passed by Parliament. Uh, so I think we need to, we need to understand where these, where these bodies come from and why, they, why, why we have them. They provide an additional layer of oversight over the, over the exercise of state power within South Africa, whether it's a power exercised by government or by other organs of state. And they, they're there to, to complement the primary oversight function of Parliament. So they report to Parliament, uh, and they're there to assist Parliament to exercise its um, oversight function. Uh, the other important point to note, note about them is that they, as their names suggest, they are specialist bodies. So, the, so they bring together specialist expertise in the various areas that we've identified in order to, to discharge those mandates. Well, let me introduce my second guest now. He's a constitutional law professor at UKZN. He's also the co-editor of the essay, Constitutional Law in Context. Uh, professor Friedman, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for your time. 
Good morning, Dosh, and good morning to other guests and your listeners. Well, perhaps let's let's take the starting point that uh, Lawson's given us here, a little bit of the background. I was going to get to it a bit later on, but uh, the public protector, Tuli Madansela, when uh, she delivered the findings of the Encandler report, mentioned you know where the idea of her office came from uh, and the idea uh, that it emerged from Sweden, that an ombudsman's office. So, you know, just take us into the background of the Chapter 9 institutions and their purpose. Thanks, thanks, Dosh. And I mean, I think a lot, Lawson has largely covered those points. But um, I think there were two two main reasons why we had the Chapter 9 institutions. One was, if you remember back in 1994, in the transition to democracy, um, state institutions at that point had lost a lot of their legitimacy. And I think the negotiators for the Constitution felt that it was important to create new institutions that would have the kind of legitimacy that was needed to achieve some of the important goals of the Constitution, like the protection of human rights or oversight of the um, various organs of state. The other important point, I think, about the Chapter 9 institutions is that they provide an alternative way for citizens to access government. Let, let me introduce my, my third guest here, because we're talking about accessing government. The CRL Rights Commission is one of those, and uh, Dr. Marjorie Jobson is, uh, Jobson rather, is one of the, co- is a commission on the CRL uh, Commission, but she's also part of the uh, Kulamani Support Group. Uh, Dr. Jobson, thanks so much for joining me. Good morning. Good morning, Gershon. Uh, and what would you say, in, just in terms of background, the importance of Chapter 9 institutions? Um, Gershon, I think it is very much a mechanism for ordinary people to get an, an outside body to assist them to access their rights. In terms of the CRL Commission, mm. um, these are related to community rights, very different from individual rights. And the CRL Commission started actually 10 years after the other Chapter 9s because it, its focus has been on working in recovering histories that have been marginalized in South Africa, that have been suppressed, and to facilitate that that these kinds of groups can become equal contributors um, to the diversity of our cultural um, contours of this country. And so it, it, we have a very specific kind of mandate. I, I've actually just completed uh, my term of office um, but I know that we have reached, we have really had significant reach in communities and especially communities whose histories have been very suppressed. Okay, so it's a quarter past eight. Give us a call right now, 0891 How are you going to rate the performance in our democracy of Chapter 9 institutions over the last 20 years? They've been described as watchdogs. Are they doing that job? Keeping government in check, transforming society. 0891 You may want to talk about the public protector and others, but what about uh, these three that we identified first up, these uh, discrimination-based uh, uh, organizations or bodies that look at discrimination in society? Society, a very hot issue. Three four seven zero one to SMSs. Oh eight nine one one zero four two eight. Before we get those lines, uh, those uh, callers on the lines, then, uh, Prof, do you, do you have any specific thoughts on the uh, CRL Rights Commission and how they've been performing so far? Um, Darshan, yes, yes, I do have a couple. I mean, I think it's a very important um, commission because what it does is it represents an important goal of our constitution, and that is the protection of diversity amongst cultural groups, language groups, and, of course, religious groups. So even though we're one country, one united country, um, our constitution also recognizes that there is diversity in our society, and that diversity is a good thing, um, and that as much as possible we need to protect that diversity. 
Um, and I think that the establishment of the commission was an important step in that direction. Um, and as um, has already been mentioned, I think it's made important strides towards achieving that goal. Mr. Naidu, uh, would you agree? Well, I think, uh, Darshan, the point that one wants to make is, uh, I think Professor Friedman is right, that the, these, uh, these bodies are a product of our, of our history at a particular point in time, at the time of the transition to democracy in South Africa. And I think the CRL Rights Commission is a very good example of that, is that it was, it was really established as a, as a result of the tensions that the country was facing at that time. And one would, would say that it is still necessary to have, a, to have such a, a, a structure that deals with the rights of uh, religious, language, uh, religious language and, um, and cultural communities. But if one uh, looks at the, uh, the, uh, the, the issues raised by the uh, Kada Asmal report mm. on the Chapter 9 bodies, and this is a very important uh, departure point for the discussion mm. we're having today, mm. because Parliament has already undertaken a review of the functioning of the Chapter 9 bodies. This was done, uh, uh, the report was, was published in 2007, uh, a parliamentary committee uh, chaired by the late Professor Kada Asmal, which recommended the, the, the uh, looked at uh, the Chapter 9 uh, uh, bodies and made a series of recommendations. And one of the key recommendations that it made, which relates to your first question about the rights-based bodies, is that we should have one overarching human rights structure, mm. a, 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 a super or enlarged human rights commission, if you like, uh, what he called a South African Commission on Human Rights and, and Equality, which would include the, uh, the existing Human Rights Commission, the Commission for Gender Equality, as well as the CRL Rights Commission, which would also include the Pan-South African Language Board, dealing specifically with the issue of language, as well as the National Youth Commission, which, are, which would also have a desk dealing with children's rights. So I think if, uh, the, the uh, proposal for the, from the Carter Asmal Commission was that we should restructure these rights bodies into one group that deals with all of those issues and some other issues uh, like the uh, Pan-South and, and the Youth Commission, uh, and which would enable a greater focus of, of resources in, in one body and a greater level of specialization to deal with these challenges. Dr. Yabson, I mean, wouldn't that be something that you would welcome? A, a lot of critics have said that there's areas of overlap between the CRR, uh, CRL Rights Commission, the Human Rights Commission, uh, and, and of course uh, the, um, the, the, the Commission of Gender Equality, that there's overlapping areas. People don't understand it very well, so why can't we just establish this one super body and, and deal away with the, with the administrative burden of managing three separate organizations. Wouldn't that be welcomed? Um, Dashan, there are merits to that argument, but um, my experience of the CRL Commission is that it has very different kinds of approaches than do the Human Rights Commission and the Gender Commission, and predominantly um, our, our focus has been over the last 10 years um, facilitating community dialogues in the places where violations are happening and I can give you examples of the kind of violations mm. so rather than a more judicial or, or legal approach it has been very much a community based approach trying to grow capacity in local places for people to find each other to begin to understand to cross these divides that come from our, our history and so we, we primarily don't make um, judgments that, you know, similar to what the Human Rights Commission does, we are tasked more with facilitating capacity development of very disadvantaged communities and helping them to engage on these issues and to put their points of view into public discourse 
So I think there has been a very unique role. I think there may be a time, I mean, certainly the administrative burdens of these institutions could well be mm. managed under one umbrella, but the specific roles and tasks of the commissions might well need a different range of um, of commissioners. I mean, with the CRL Commission, it is people with experience of language, religion, and culture, whereas the Human Rights Commission tends to have many more lawyers on it. Um, so there are differences, but I do think the cost could be reduced significantly by having an overall umbrella administrative structure. It's 21 minutes after 8. Prof, I'll give you a chance to engage on this as well, whether there should be one super body. But I just want to invite the callers. We do have a couple that have uh, called us through. 891 uh, Call through right now. We'll uh, put you on air and give our, our guests a chance to respond to you. Uh, Kaya in Hoffman is calling in. Uh, chapter 9s of 1994 did a good job, you say? Hi, hi, Deshin. Hi, sure. Good morning to your guest as well. Deshin, I think the Chapter 9 institutions have done a good job in this country since 1994. We can cite a lot of examples. But this debate that says we need to have an umbrella structure that will be, you know, administratively looking on this issue is a very, you know, a positive move, you know, to make sure that things are coordinated properly and there is a, a form of accountability in the country. But the point that I want to make, when I Deshin, is that we, we, we need to educate more as to who are these uh, uh, the gender-based uh, uh, structures and, and then the youth commissions and everything else. Because once we, 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 we don't do much in terms of creating community awareness, people will not be okay making use of these structures effectively for their own benefit, as well as to think that these structures are dependent on government for them to perform. The government is, is, is actually respecting the constitution by making sure that they recognize those structures. So I'm saying let's do community awareness so that our people can understand the existence of such structures and having that umbrella board. I fully support that. Thanks, Tasha. Thank you very much, Kaya. That's one of my main points today is about awareness. And if we just look at the SA Human Rights, uh, SA um, Human Sciences Research Council, which did some research on how well aware we are of the work and the relationship between Chapter 9 institutions and civil society, well, they generally found that we're unaware of the existence of Chapter 9s, and we as a public are generally poorly educated on what their purposes, what their powers are, and what their functions are. Uh, we'll get back to uh, that shortly, but let's just go back to the lines and a lot more callers. I don't want to keep you on hold. 0891-1042-8. Hassan Logart, good morning. Hi. I don't know whether, whether we, we're grabbing it at the wrong end, because mm. these have not even begun to work, as some of you may mm. realize. And the other thing that I'm, I'm worried about is really, if you look at the ANC's 1994 manifesto, they talk about the public protector as part of the manifesto, that they will behave this public protector that will protect the people. So really, the ANC should not be crying. The trouble is, is not simply whether you have them under one roof. I think actually it may be a bad thing under the current circumstances. Mm. You know, what we need is that the diversity, as Marge uh, Jobson has pointed out, must grow. They don't have to be bureaucratic, but they need to be funded adequately to do the job. Mm. That's one. Secondly, people who are uh, uh, independent, without fear and favor, as the Constitution says, can perform that, have very rarely been uh, appointed to take these positions. Uh, whether they call Tuli Marunsella a factory fault, it's a really good one for that matter, because it works in the interest as the Constitution wants it to be. You don't have to agree with the politicians. And what you'll end up doing, you have a big omnibus there, and then you vote in Parliament uh, to approve who the person would be, and voila, you've got one dead 
human rights sector. I don't think that's what we want. We want the diversity in the society that can make sure that, that we, our rights are fulfilled where people feel strongly what, what, where they've been denied. So they must be resourced, but also the people that we choose the public must have some say whether these people are credible or not. Hassan, thanks for that call, Hassan Lagarde. Billy and Midrand, good morning. Very quickly, please. How, well, your esteemed guests, and I'm having a go at you as well in the media, because we do not, we do not live in a constitutional democracy. Mm-hmm. And people like me are going to start reporting people on the air, abusing mm-hmm. microphones, because we live in a constitutional republic, and there is a massive difference. Your esteemed guests keep saying, oh, we live in a constitutional democracy, and professors, supposedly learned people, well, unlearned people like me are going to start taking the guys on and reporting them for propaganda and nonsense. That's where we need to start. If you want to start with education, then let's be realistic and start right from the very first step. Okay, Billy, Billy hold on. Hold on the line. Let's, let's, let's engage with someone here. Uh, yeah. Lawson, let, take, take on Billy's point here. Well, I think we have, we have the framework of a constitutional democracy, and we, we need to utilize the institutions and structures that have been created within our constitution to strengthen and, and enhance that constitutional democracy. I think it, uh, I, I wouldn't agree that we don't live in a constitutional democracy. It may be a flawed uh, democracy at this point in time, but uh, yeah. we have the tools certainly to strengthen that and to, and to utilize that. And well, we, 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 we have a vibrant society that can engage in debates of this sort that proves that we, we, we do indeed engage on the issues that look at how we can strengthen uh, who we are. Billy, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's going to take us off the point. How does it relate to assessing the performance of Chapter 9 institutions? Bring it back to the point, Billy. Before even we go to the point, the, the point is that we, the, the Republic of South Africa is not a country. It is a corporation. And your learned guests need to, to learn about this. We don't live in a country. We, Jacob Zuma is the CEO of the Republic of South Africa. Well, Chile Madonsela said that. The public protector said that during the Nkandla report. Billy, what's the point? I, the I'm not point sure if you're is, moving off it. Yet. The point is that we, we are being conned and lulled with a... The Constitution is the handbook of the corporation. It's not for the country. It's for the corporation. Mm-hmm. And I'm a man. I'm mm-hmm. not a person. I'm a man on the land, I'm not a person under admiralty commercial law of the sea, which is the legal system, and that is the initial problem that these people on the air are overlooking because they are ignorant of these facts. Billy, thanks for that call. Uh, Prof, if, if, if you'd like to, you can deal with Billy's point, but I'd like to bring you back to this uh, you know, super discrimination body that, that, that was being mooted in the Asmal report. Yes, look, I'm, I'm not sure what Billy meant by the mm. difference between a constitutional democracy and a constitutional republic. I'm also not sure whether 50 million South Africans are being conned. Look, Billy, if, if you are listening, Billy, perhaps you can send us an SMS. We, it, it's really going to take us off the topic, and I'm just a little bit concerned that we're not going to spend enough time talking about the six Chapter 9 institutions that we have to talk about today. So, Billy, if you can SMS, we'll try to read it out during the show if you'd like to give us more clarity on that. Uh, let's move to the issue of the super cluster. Yes. So I, mean, I think I would largely agree with Professor Arsenal's recommendation that there should be one superbody covering at least the Southern Human Rights Commission, the Gender Commission, and the Commission on Culture, Language, and Religion. Um, I think, as many of your guests have already pointed out, one of the problems with having a diversity of commissions is that there's competition for resources, there's competition for public profile. I would imagine there's competition for skilled personnel, and of course there are overlapping mandates, which can lead to conflicts as well. Um, and while I appreciate Dr. Jobson's points, I think that they could be accommodated in a single overarching body. Hmm. Uh, 28 minutes after 8, if you'd like to SMS us, 34701. We're talking today about Chapter 9 institutions. How would you rate their performance? 
20 years into democracy. 34701 to SMSs. Kaya brought up the point of awareness. I want to deal with it uh, just very quickly, but we do need to expand on it when we return just after uh, the 830 News headlines. But Dr. Yebsen, this question of awareness must be a big bugbear for organizations like you. You put all this money into getting reports, the money that you can get, first of all. Hassan makes the point that you're not quite getting adequate funding. But you use the money that you do get to put reports together, make some noise. But is anyone even paying attention? Not just the public, but is an, if Parliament, are they you know, even paying attention to you? And Dashen, you know, some of the points Hassan raised are the critical points, and I, I want to rather return to them. Um, mm. The biggest issue is around the way the, the people who populate the commissions are selected and where you find that there has been um, a parliamentary committee established and there's been open questioning and interviewing of commissioners, we very often get um, a much a much better selection of commissioners. Um, we've certainly had problems with CRL with the selection process, which was um, handled in ways that wasn't scrutinized by the public. And I think that's a very, very important thing to conjure going forward. Um, the issue of resources is always going to be there. And, I, and I mean, we have tried, I've sat on the finance committee of the CRL Commission and try to ensure that we don't use more than 40% of our resources on the running the institution so that there's enough money for the real outreach programs, which is where our focus is, dealing with complaints and then doing the awareness and education in communities, especially communities who have very little access because historically they've been so disadvantaged. Dr. Yabson, I, I have I, to ask you to hold it just there. It, it has reached age study. Um, apologies for this, but we're going to continue the conversation. We need to talk more about awareness, resources, and the people that are appointed. It is 8.30. Time for your news headlines. Kirit Lala has us. 27 minutes to 9, morning talk with Rowena Bird coming up. Rowena, good morning. What's on the show today? Good morning, Darshan. Thank you very much. Coming up on morning talk today, as we exit Human Rights Month, we take a look at the rights of foreigners in South Africa. I mean, we still see incidents of xenophobia in different forms 20 years into our democracy. We've also noticed the number of calls that we get on our open line from foreign nationals who... um, often call in to complain about harassment. So in the first hour of the program, we look at the underlying causes behind the xenophobic attacks. Last week saw the return to South Africa of convicted drug mule Tessa Bietre. Uh, she'd served five and a half years of her sentence in a Brazilian prison. She was caught in 2008 uh, with uh, over 10 kilograms of cocaine in, in her luggage at that uh, airport in Sao Paulo. We're going to talk about the plight of South Africans detained in foreign prisons and uh, that's going to be coming up but, uh, just after the 10 o'clock news. On psychological matters with Johanna Cleovlu, we talk about the effects of divorce on children. Obviously, we look forward to your participation uh, to that discussion as well. In the final hour of the program, we're going to look at the politics of Venezuela. There have been weeks of unrest in that country. They've seen the president of Venezuela finally agreeing to having an international arbiter overseeing peace talks in that country. We'll find out more about what's at the center of politics in Venezuela. That's the show for today. Thank you, Darshan.
20, it's 25 minutes to 9. We're talking today about rating the performance of Chapter 9 institutions. I also have a question for you. If you could craft a new Chapter 9 institution, what would it look like? What powers would you give it? What would it investigate first up? And perhaps would it be a conglomeration of the three discrimination-based uh, Chapter 9 institutions, the Human Rights Commission, the CRL, CRL and the CGE? Uh, Dr. Yebsen, I'm sorry for, for cutting you off earlier, but you were making the point uh, or responding rather to Hassan's point. He was quite concerned about how people are appointed to Chapter 9 institutions. The Asmal report, uh, again, was also quite concerned about this, referring to that in 2007 they found and, and recommended that, that those appointed as commissioners should resign any high-level posts in political parties. Does that happen, Dr. Yepsen? Um, with the CRL Commission, that, that did definitely happen. People were required to relinquish their political positions. Um, but um, one of the biggest challenges I think we've had is around um, leading an institution like these commissions, which has such a diversity of talent, and the people who lead a commission need to be able to tolerate very rigorous debate and engagement with issues because we have so many diverse perspectives in this mm. country. And one of the difficulties that we lived with was um, from I was on, on the first and the second uh, commission. From the first commission, we came out of this period of transition where we were used to engaging each other with great honesty. And we've seen that kind of practice um, becoming very diminished and very sadly. And so we would not come out of these difficult situations around, you know, a kind of nostalgic recreation of culture which doesn't take anybody forward. Um, we actually found we, we could not have those tough conversations. And I think it's essential that those conversations are taking place in these institutions. So we need people who who have their own position, but who are also able to engage across those um, divisions and not take us back into more conservative approaches. Um, we found, you know, un under this last five years, um, we found emergence of very unhelpful traditional practices and, and, and a sense in our commission, for instance, that maybe we had to defend things that are no longer, in terms of our constitution, defensible. So... Um, you see, that's the tricky part, is that we should never lose this capacity to to debate the issues until we find a way that we can meet the requirements of the Constitution and still respect the different opinions. Lawson, Nadia, uh, uh, at, at the end of the day, the leadership of these Chapter 9s is appointed by the President, and, and the Chapter 9 institutions also funded by state departments. How, how truly independent could they be? One could ask that question. Are these Chapter 9 institutions? Um, uh, thank you, Darshan. Uh, I think the two points there is that uh, there are very different uh, appointment processes for the various Chapter 9 bodies. Uh, some of them go through a, a parliamentary process whereby there's a, 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 a committee of parliament that presents a shortlist to the National Assembly, which then makes a recommendation to the President, and the President makes the appointment. So the appointment is, is done by the President, but on the recommendation of Parliament, and the President has no discretion in that regard. Um, the issue that, that has been raised is, is about the role of civil society in that, in that uh, appointment process. And the AFMOL committee made a recommendation that there should be a greater involvement 
of civil society in the appointments process. At the, at the moment, that, that involvement is limited to making uh, nominations to Parliament as to appropriate people to serve on these commissions uh, when vacancies arise. Um, but the argument is that there should be a greater role, and one of the suggestions that has come forward is that perhaps when a, when a, when a shortlist is developed before a recommendation is made by Parliament, that shortlist should be publi- published so that civil society and ordinary South Africans can comment on, on, on those uh, individuals that are shortlisted. That would enhance the process and would, would hopefully enable us to have people who are truly independent and who communities are aware of that have done work relating to those areas of expertise that they seek to, to go on and perform within these commissions. So I think that that, that is a critical uh, issue around the appointments process. I think the other issue that arises from both what uh, Hassan and Kaya said, it talks to the issue of, of accountability and then about resources. Uh, in order to, to conduct more um, uh, public education around uh, Chapter 9 bodies and around the Constitution in general, uh, these bodies need to, need to be adequately funded. At the moment, they prepare their budgets, but their budgets are argued uh, on their behalf by government departments, which seems to detract from the independence and the autonomy of these bodies. So again, the Asmal Committee recommended that there should be a special uh, vote under the parliamentary budget vote that deals with the funding of the Chapter 9s, and they should be able to engage with Treasury directly in order to argue for the, the funds that they require so that Treasury understands the needs that they have and they're able to engage more, uh, properly with, uh, with that. Because a critical component of their independence is, is to be able to determine their own work programs and to, and, to, and to budget for those accordingly. Prof, we hear the word independence a lot when it comes to Chapter 9 institutions. The leadership must be independent. The state, or the, the, the body itself is independent. Uh, you know, the leadership, uh, of course, uh, wants to claim independence as well. Should Chapter 9s consider public perception when performing their work? It's a question that comes from the Human Sciences Research Council in their report. Um, yes, gosh, so a couple of points. I mean, I think it is entirely appropriate that Parliament is involved in selecting the commissioners. After all, I think we must appreciate that Parliament is the democratically elected representative of the people, um, and that in that respect, it performs an important role. I mean, I guess one of the difficulties that has arisen is that we've got what you could call a one-party dominant democracy, um, and given the uh, ANC's, you know, um, electoral support in Parliament, there is a possibility that obviously the commissioner that has chosen supports that party, and that could lead to perceptions of bias over the long term. Um, and for that reason, I think that the points made by your other guests are very important, that the involvement of civil society and the public is crucial when it comes to appointing um, commissioners. Mm. A great question that comes in from Larry here in Port Elizabeth. He says, is there a human rights office in Port Elizabeth? If not, why not? And where do we go? Larry, well, we, my producer found this for you. It is in the Eastern Cape. The address is the fourth floor Oxford House 86 Oxford Street, East London, 5200. We even have the contact person, the name, the email address. So if you want to give us a call, we'll give you those details as well. But I guess it's a question that Kaya brings up as well, which is this issue of awareness. Uh, Dr. Yabson, does the public have enough access to your offices? Are there offices in rural areas, in villages? Do they know how to access your office, what you do, the, the concerns that they have, where to go? Because the Human Sciences Research Council and its report say there's a disjuncture here between you and the public. Um, Dashan, unlike the Human Rights Commission, the CRL Commission does not have provincial offices, but does designate responsibility for provinces 
two commissioners who come from those provinces. Um, there are still problems with that because there's no institutional base in the province and there's also no, at this stage, no budget to support the activities. Um, I think the budget provides for four days of work per month in the province, so there are severe limitations. I think this speaks to the fact that the budgets tend to come from line departments rather than from another arrangement for financing. Um, there is this new office in Parliament called Office on ISDs, it's called Institutions Supporting Democracy, and I think mm. that has been a good advance. It did come out of the ASMAR report. Mm. Um, but you see, the, the, the process that we embarked on was that we we encouraged communities to register a community council. We now have um, very representative community councils across most of the provinces, and our database then affords us a way of keeping on engaging those communities. And and it's actually word of mouth, you know, across these areas that people hear about the commission. And of course, then if you get time in the media, which is critical, and we haven't been very, very good at um, using the, using the the media to reach people. But um, I mean, I would like to say also that every three years there is a national consultative conference, and the declaration from that conference shapes the entire program of action for the next three years. So it is, I mean, we, we really have attempted to align ourselves with what the burning issues are for communities. Well, we've got the Commission of Gender Equality who's called in. Uh, Jabu, I think, is the spokesperson. Jabu, that's right? Yes, Jabu Balai. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, you know, we've been looking at Chapter 9 institutions. There was a recommendation some time ago that you work more closely with civil society organizations to build those closer links with the public. More concerns whether you have offices in the ro- local communities. How would you respond to those two issues? Thank you, Dr. for the question. As a commission, we working very, very well with civil society on the ground. And that will be only also be shown case, showcase on the 9th to the 11th when we are for the National General Summit. It's stakeholders on the ground that are calling in to be party to this. Um, but I must emphasize that, you know, one of the greatest questions that you ask one of your, 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 your participants is that, are we making enough? Is there impact from, uh, from the sector? Our, our answer is resounding yes. From looking from our sister chapter and organization, we're making a serious impact. Majority of the cases that are being received, the commission is solving, is assisting the communities, are from rural areas. We are there, we have translated our material in vernacular so that, you know, we can assist most of our people in the, on the ground. And also, we are being taken seriously by parliament because, you know, last year, I remember on the 31st of August, the portfolio committee on the, estate, uh, on the women, children, and people with disability descended from Cape Town to here. Yeah, they wanted to see the kind of impact that we know beginning to generate as chapter 9, more especially the Commission for Gender Equality. We're in Mamilodi, in a township, where they were so, so, so shocked by the way in which the commission, and they said that should be used as a model for other chapter 9, and so that they saw how we interacted with civil society. And also, the portfolio committee on victims, uh, on corruption services, they called on us, they said, Nothing will be concluded without the Commission for Gender Equality's input on this victim charter. So that mm-hmm. on its own, it 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 it, 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 it well for the work that the Commission is doing. And uh, but one thing that you raise, which is of critical importance, 
the funding of the chapter 9 institution, more especially the Commission for Gender Equality, the CRL Commission, you'll find that, you know, for us, we spend a rent for every head of a person in South Africa. And that's it. The money is minimal. We must maximize it by using our resources to go to rural areas, go where we need it the most. And we've solved a lot of cases, and our 0800-007-70 number is being flooded by calls, day in and day out, by people who want to get assistance. The question, question is, is media taking the gender agenda and other human rights issues seriously? As much as we have for the good relationship with the media, mm-hmm. at times, you know, we realize there's, there's a disjuncture whereby media do not cover these breaking issues and take them seriously. If we can have that relationship with the media, I am telling you, uh, the future looks well for South Africa. Civil society are on board. You remember there's a civil society organization. That is called City Monitors. They are so, so, so happy with the work of the commission. We have turned around and we went together with all the chapter nine, particularly the Human Rights Commission, uh, the CRL Commission, the IEC, when we go to the ground. We will working in museum so that, you know, we have got one common Jabu. goal. As we have yes. to leave it there with you. Thank you very much for that call. Jabu there. Jabu Blois, the uh, spokesperson for the Commission of Gender Equality. Uh, Mr. Nari, we haven't even started talking about the public protector yet. We're almost out of time, and I'm sure a lot of people wanted us to get to this. Many of the SMSs uh, that I received this morning did uh, were dominating, uh, were, were dominant about the uh, public protector. Uh, Chinemo Elias says that it seems like the office of the public protector is biased. They seem to be against the government particularly. But having said that, though, I think they're fighting corruption with everything they have. Perceptions of bias around the public protector, too much power, too little power. Uh, where do you stand in this debate? Uh, Mr. Well, firstly, uh, I think uh, you know, let, let us uh, let me deal with the first issue. Uh, somebody who said that uh, the public protector is always fighting against government. Mm. Well, the the duty of the public protector is to investigate maladministration in the in in the in the state sphere of, uh, of things. So it will only investigate government. It does not have the mandate to investigate the private sector. So uh, it will, of necessity, only make finding against government or state organs. Uh, so um, that's the first point. The second point is that the, the, the Office of the Public Protector deals, as I've said, with the abuse of power, with maladministration in the, in the public sector. Uh, uh, it, it is not uh, primarily an anti-corruption agency. It, that's part of its extended mandate is to look at issues of corruption. And I think uh, the Office of the Public Protector uh, has, by and large, been doing a very good job in terms of discharging its mandate, Without fear, favour, or prejudice, and uh, and has been in, in the news, obviously, uh, for for many of those high-profile reports that it uh, that it uh, has conducted recently. But let us not forget that they 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 investigate many thousands of complaints from ordinary citizens and deal with all of those. Well, the key word they investigate and administrative powers. They they don't have powers to discipline government officials. Should they have that power? Well, if, again, come back to your earlier point about uh, where the office of the public protector emanates from and the, and the Swedish example mm. of, the, of the ombudsman in, in Sweden that goes back over 200 years is, is a body that is, uh, that is established uh, uh, under Swedish law uh, that is uh, adjacent to parliament that has, uh, doesn't have um, enforcement powers. It relies on other institutions of state to enforce its recommendations. So it's a, it's a morally persuasive body uh, and set up as an independent agency and on the basis that it will be staffed in a way that will, uh, that will engender respect for its decisions and its recommendations. And we therefore need to elevate the status of the, of these chapter nine institutions in that way and government should be obliged to heed 
the, uh, the, the decisions of these, these bodies. Perfect. And the responsibility is on mm-hmm. Parliament to ensure that these bodies' uh, recommendations uh, are, are indeed uh, enforced and, and put into practice. Because, after all, uh, the primary responsibility for holding government to account resides with Parliament. Prof, we have to go to a break, but I want to just deal with this point very quickly. One of the issues that the public protector grappled with in, in the Incandler report is how to deal with someone in an investigation who's not in government, who's not a government official, like Mr. Makanya, the Incandler yes. consultant paid 16.5 million rand. The former public protector, Lawrence Mushwana, has stopped an investigation into whether taxpayers' money could have been channeled into ANC coffers via oil trader Mvuma. He argued at that point he could not follow the money as his mandate did not extend to oversight of non-state entities such as Mvume and the ANC. Do you think the powers of the Chapter 9 institutions like the Public Protector should be extended beyond state organs? Um, yes, I do. I think if you look at the provisions of the Constitution and the Public Protector Act, they set out in very wide terms. And I think the, key, the crucial point is not so much whether it's a um, state organization, but rather whether state money is being um, misappropriated or um, abused. And I think that the power of the public protector is to follow state money, um, not only when it's being abused by an organ of state, but by um, a, public, a private person as well. Let's take that short break now. We'll be right back with my guest to wrap up after this. Hi. Can I update my... Sure. Hi, Mrs. R. Sorry, science project. Okay. Really need to make a call. Go on. Hi, Joe from Telcom. You called 10213? Guys, it's for you. Come get your own broadband so you can do what you're doing at your own homes. Pay a visit to the leader in fixed broadband. Call 10213. Go to telcom.co.za or visit your nearest Telcom store. Conditions apply. To the business leaders who believe in the growth of our country who have a vision that transcends our borders, who are taking those steps into foreign investment and capital goods projects across the African continent, we will go with you. As an official export credit agency of the South African government, we are dedicated to being your risk mitigator. Whether you are exporting or investing, find out more on ecic.co.za. The Export Credit Insurance Corporation, your export risk partner. ECIC is a registered financial services provider. The Forum at 8 on SAFM. Lawson, if I can start wrapping up with you first. Uh, the Asmal Committee's report expressed a lot of concern that Parliament was not interested in the matters reported by Chapter 9s. We've talked a lot about some of the recommendations of the Chapter 9 institutions from the Asmal report. The Human Sciences Research Council also put out a report in 2007 who also lambasted the quality of the relationship between Chapter 9s and civil society. So not just a concern about public, uh, about Parliament, but also the public. Have any of these, uh, of these matters been addressed in the last seven years since those reports were put together? Well, uh, unfortunately, the answer to that question is, 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 a, is no. Uh, and it, it is a, a matter of serious concern that this report of the Asma Committee that was prepared in 2007 has yet to be discussed in the National Assembly. Mm. Parliament has not uh, taken on board the, the recommendations. It has not uh, engaged with the report. Uh, except to to establish the office, as Marjorie mentioned, mm. the office of the deputy speaker dealing with uh, constitutional institutions. But again, one is one is unaware of how effective that uh, office is and exactly what it is that that office is doing. It doesn't appear from the outside to have had any serious impact in terms of enhancing the level of of um, 
of the relationship between the Chapter 9 bodies in Parliament. One of the, the, the complaints that comes through from, from various Chapter 9 bodies is that they, they, they go to great extent doing a lot of very good work, preparing reports, submitting reports to Parliament, and the reports simply get tabled and nobody discusses them. Now, which is not to say that Parliament must, must look at every single report that comes from a Chapter 9 body, but there are particular reports. For example, the Human Rights Commission is obliged to, to report regularly to Parliament on steps taken to, uh, to implement the socio-economic rights that are established within the Bill of Rights. That obviously looks at, uh, at the uh, effectiveness of, of the various government departments dealing with issues of water, sanitation, housing, etc., which Parliament ought to take on board because these institutions are providing Parliament with, with specialist uh, reports and technical expertise that Parliament itself may not have in order to interrogate how government is performing in relation to discharging its, its obligations under the Bill of Rights. Dr. So there's, 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 there's much more that needs to be done in mm -hmm. that regard for Parliament to, to take on board and to, and to interrogate some of these reports and assist Parliament to hold the executive to account. Lawson Adi, thank you very much for your time today from KSAC. Dr. Marjorie Jobson, do you think Parliament's paying more attention to you now and to the, after chapter, uh, to the other Chapter 9 institutions? Um, I agree with um, Lawson's comments that you know, our, our research reports are submitted to Parliament and I don't think there's any discussion of the mm -hmm. recommendations. And I think the onus is on us, especially because these issues affect people in municipalities at local government level, and we need to be much more rigorous in, in bringing the issues to the attention of municipalities so they get included into integrated development planning. So, yes, I think we are not fulfilling our, our role in, that, in, in making these things more relevant. Dr. Marjorie Jobson, thanks for joining us uh, from the Kulamani Support Group. She's also a commissioner on the CRL Rights Commission. Uh, uh, Professor Friedman, I'll, I'll give you the final word of this, uh, probably the toughest one, unfortunately, because I, I, we didn't get to this, and I wanted to chat about it. You know, whether there was a Chapter 9 institution that we could still craft, something that we still needed, and here's where I got the idea. It was PANSELB. Many are saying we should have a commission that deals with languages as well, a Chapter 9 institution that deals with this inherent challenge of language in South Africa. Is there an institution that we're still lacking in terms of a Chapter 9 body? Um, no, not at the moment. I think that they cover the key features of our constitution and the goals that we've set for ourselves. I mean, certainly as part of Professor Osmal's report was that the Pan-South African Language Board should be incorporated into this new kind mm. of super commission. And I think that would certainly accommodate, accommodate that uh, concern. But in my view, I think that the crafters of our constitution um, were quite innovative and had a lot of foresight when they put together Chapter 9 um, and really managed to cover the key, the key issues that are important to South Africa. Your final word on our topic today, how you would rate the performance of uh, Chapter 9 institutions? Darshan, um, I think it's been a mixed performance, uh, you know, uh, not surprisingly. But on the whole, I think that they've made an extremely unique and important contribution to the development of our constitution and our country. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Professor Warren Friedman from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Thank you very much for your SMSs this morning. Uh, these came through, while mechanisms to eliminate duplicate exp expenditure is important, a superstructure could undermine the independence and capacity of individual commissions. Ivan says, uh, can your guess at least give us one concrete achievement of any of these commissions, chief from the public protector? Ivan, you heard uh, some of those this morning. Khadi in P. 
P-A, says P-A, where's P-A? Uh, Ms. Madoncella, whether consciously or not, has done a lot to educate us about the existence of her institution. That is what is needed. People appointed to head these must tell us about their existence and the work that they do. That's Khadi in P-A. This comes in from Abdul in Fishhook, says, what about transparency? Chapter 9, Washdog, Viva, Madoncella, uh, Tam Sankha in Me, Tam Sankha, Menez writes in, that's not true. The Chapter 9 institutions are very free to do their job in this country. But right now, opposition parties and some in the media are driving them to be against our government instead of working to solve our problems of poverty and joblessness. Derek Malepe on Facebook says, Some are as good as dead, like the Human Rights Commission, the Auditor General, except only the public protector under Tuli Madoncella. We didn't get to talk about the AG's office today. Uh, the public protector and the AG, according to Tsipe, stand head and shoulders above the others because of the statue of the incumbents. Or is it because of how they dealt with in Parliament, Tsipe? Mervyn responds, says uh, the ruling party fears criticism, sends a worrying signal to citizens regarding these Chapter 9 bodies, democracies in danger, Zimbabwe scenario. I don't know if we can say that, Mervyn. Uh, and uh, this came in from Magab in Pretoria, says, why those accused by the public protector criticised for questioning and challenging her findings? 34701, do appreciate your comments today. You can continue talking to us on Twitter and Facebook, AM Live. Live on SAFM, follow the show. We're joining you again tomorrow, 6 to 9 a.m. From myself, Dasha Mudley, and our team of producers, thanks very much for your day. Take care.